We are Michael Vesey in London, England. And Jason Miles in Seattle, Washington. More importantly, you are the owner of a thriving online business and you want to become the best e-commerce leader you can be. We're here to get you there. For show notes with links and resources mentioned today and for other GC resources like downloads, just visit our blog, theecommerceleader.com. This week, Michael's overview and comparison of the main Amazon business models is going to be something of interest for everyone. It's a great opportunity to really understand how best to build an Amazon business. Things that you can get wrong can really mess you up for the long term. And if you have a mismatch from where you're starting to where you're ending, it can really be a problem financially and in terms of your time and energy investment. But if you get it right, you can have a smoother path to success and learning and scaling a business. So, Michael, I'm thrilled to be able to talk about e-commerce business models that we can execute on Amazon with you. How are you thinking about this topic and are you ready to jump into it today? I'm absolutely ready. I love the are you ready question each week. It's one of our traditions on this podcast. I love it. You're such a gentleman, Jason. I love it. So yeah, how am I approaching it? Well, to be clear, I think the first thing to say is mostly this is about sourcing models with the odd exception. So, But it turns out that has such a profound impact on the skill set you need and the money you need and the complexity that I think effectively they are kind of different business models, although there's obviously overlap as well. One of the interesting things, I think, for those listening, whether you're at the very beginning of, this, of the journey, haven't even sold anything on e-commerce uh, platforms yet, including Amazon, or whether you are quite an advanced and experienced seller, I think there's always a danger in getting over-focused on one model. And actually, that can be bigger for those who've only operated one model for years than it is for somebody starting off. So I think that there's something for everyone here, whatever your situation. What I'm going to do is to simply move through the models as I perceive it, from the simple towards the complex. And the financial requirements get bigger as we go, but the wins hopefully can get bigger in size. That said, any one of these models can be scaled up to a, a full-size business, if you like. So there's not... It's not so much better or worse or sophisticated or unsophisticated is as yeah. a sort of match between how the model operates and who you are and what your resources are at, at any given yeah. point. I think it's fair to say if you ask someone how many business models they need, the answer really is just one that works. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Absolutely. So yes. If, if your first business model works really well for you on Amazon, then don't look any further. And if you're happy Agreed. as a clam and you think, man, my business is as good as I could ever have dreamt it to be, then it's just about refining that business model. But if you're in the situation where you say to yourself, mm, now that I've learned how to, this, to do this, I see the weaknesses in it. And I'm wondering if I can really scale a business on the back of this business model, then you're in the situation where learning about more would make a ton of sense. Okay. So yeah. Michael, what are the you know kind of main issues to think about when you are looking at business models? What you know, kind of what is a high level overview in terms of your framework for uh, thinking about them? Sure. So really, what tends to happen is that people look at a business model like they look at a pair of shoes or, or a clothing in a shop or in, a, in, in, in an advert or even a house, and they kind of get sold into the idea of something because it looks glamorous on the model. And what really matters is how well it fits you and your situation and also where mm -hmm. you want to go. But more importantly than anything, it fits who you are right now. So really, the, the first question, most important, is who is it for? The capital requirements are very linked to that, but it's not the only thing. The speed of return and the sort of personalities that work and don't work with some of these models 
And so, in short, pros and cons, and then suggestions also for how this might fit into your skills development journey. If you are, as you said, if you've got a business model that's working, I mm-hmm. exactly as you say, I just double down on that and refine it. But quite often, things half work but aren't satisfying. And at that point, it may be time to pivot to a different business model, maybe a couple of times until you find something where you can really hit your groove. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, for the sake of the conversation, we should define what we mean by a business model. And I think we probably just assume that people know what that means, but there are different types of strategies and tactics that you can execute that are becoming, they become named and known as a certain type of business nestled into the Amazon ecosystem. Is that how you look at these in terms of the phrase of a business model? Is there any other nuance there you want to share? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd be in favor of simplifying this down. So broadly speaking, as I said, I think it's more or less by the sort of sourcing or how you get the products, whether you're buying existing yeah. ones or creating them. So I would divide it into three groups, really, one, two main groups, and then a third one that's worth exploring, but I don't personally know much about, but it's, we should mention. Group A, as I'll call it, is sell, reselling existing products. So that includes mm-hmm. RA, OA, and mm-hmm. replans, wholesale, even used books, which I guess is a subset of RA, mm-hmm. retail arbitrage, that is to say. There's developing products to a greater or lesser degree, uh, private label, lightly customized, custom produced stuff, and then handcrafted, which is a subset of, of the others. And then there's digital publishing, which includes mm-hmm. uh, things like KDB publishing and merch as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Love it. Okay, so we're going to dive into each of those, just give a little bit of a detail, kind of kind of explain them and walk through them. So in this conversation, we'll walk through all of those with the high, high level pros and cons. And so let's do that. Let's jump into this first set, which you called the reselling uh, business models. And uh, so you want to kind of just break those down one by one and we can chime in. I can chime in on each one. How do you want to walk through the list here? Yeah, why don't we do them one by one at a time? Because I think okay. that, you know, there's high level and then there's overly high level. Yeah. So let's let's talk about each one. Yeah. So the first one that we've got here that we want to talk about is used books. Yeah. Uh, sourcing used books and selling them on Amazon is a uh, a well-worn business model. Greg Murphy is the American expert on the topic and is a good guy. He does a lot of teaching and I forget the exact URL of his website, but something like bus proof business or something like that. His whole premise is if you get hit by a bus, you need to have a business that continues to work without you. But he, he focuses on large scale used book sourcing and selling. And it can be gold, You can find rare books, for example, that you can sell on eBay for hundreds and hundreds of dollars. But most of the time, it's about finding books that are in demand, but not oversupplied. And learning that game is of interest. And um, so that's the used books model. And uh, obviously, it feeds into Amazon very nicely. It does. I mean, I, I can't say that I've done this at scale. I've done little bits of it and actually found it pretty profitable, but I didn't bother to scale it up because it wasn't ever something yeah. I was wanting to scale because I was focused on private label and yeah. unique products. But what I would say is from those who've done a lot of this stuff, and I work with a lady called Robin uh, Johnson, I should say, and it was best from the best nest. From the nest. That's mm-hmm. from the nest. That's the one. Lovely lady, former minister, interestingly enough. So not at all your typical you know, young capitalist selling lemonade stand at the age of whatever, five. But anyway, so she's big on used books as a good starting point. It can, of course, scale, as, as Greg Murphy says, mm-hmm. to, to a big business like anything else. I mean, let's not forget that Jeff Bezos considered about 20 different product types when he was 
going cross country from New York to to Washington State. And of course, he uh, decided on books for a very good reason. So they're very mm-hmm. resellable. There's a lot of yeah. simplicity compared to other things. As soon as you start selling other types of products, you start interacting with the legislation or Amazon requirements, whether you're selling face cream or you know some other product that seems fairly simple. And of course, books are books, so they have one product type, even though there's millions and millions mm-hmm. of different possibilities within that. So I think it's a, a very good starting point if you're not sure what to do and you if any interest in books and you've got some decent bookshops near you yeah. that sell secondhand or any other sources like uh, libraries and things like that. I don't know the detail, but I do think that it's it's yeah. very cheap and straightforward to start. And for some people, it could be something to scale up to a big business if you really wanted to. Can I just mention one little thing here before used book selling is I would imagine that in a place, a place, there would be opportunity to source books that are old, that aren't online and first Mm. editions or books like that. I just wonder if that's an angle for those who are in the UK or in Europe where you could just source these rarer books, older, you know, books that people might be looking for. I don't know, just a thought. I really just don't know from experience. I mean, I I guess it comes down to the old question of where does your target customer hang out? Now, if target customers Mm -hmm. are online and on Amazon, um, then that would work very well. And the chances Mm -hmm. are that that could be the case. I'd really want to investigate that because it could be that people who really love rare books are really anti-Amazon. And that's quite possible as well. So Mm, I just don't don't know from experience. I can say, though, from personal experience, I've sold books that I bought for about £50, so about 75 bucks, and sold them for 200 There mm-hmm. are some rare books around just in my local charity shop. Now, that's in a very educated, wealthy area, so where you mm-hmm. source makes a difference. But those weren't rare or collectible books. I think one of them was a boss book. It's some kind of fashion-led thing mm-hmm. that yeah. I just looked it up on Amazon. I'm like, well, holy smokes, I should be able to sell this for a lot of money. I held yeah. on to it for months, by the way. So holding on to stock for months is a problem in the modern Amazon world, and that is yeah. one of the downsides of books. So you may end up having to store them off Amazon. So you know that that is one of the downsides i guess yeah in the comments andrew from the uk said some of the top sellers on ebay uk are booksellers and that there is an opportunity for the europeans to source rarer books that people around the world might like yeah there you go okay so that's book sourcing let's move on uh, so retail, retail arbitrage, arbitrage. Is, yeah. yeah, it's the next one. Yeah, so that's yeah. the classic as, as you know, publicized, I guess, by our friend, Chris, Chris Green, he's, uh, you know, probably not overly focused on that now, but, you know, made it famous mm-hmm. for years and, and kind of came up with the term. And uh, obviously, this is the classic play to start with. Again, traditionally, you start with a small amount of money, it can be scaled up to a very big business. If you're going to scale it up to a big business, I would say that it's not going to be that simple. I, I would actually say that a big a business of a similar profit level, if it's retail arbitrage and versus a private label, it's going to be more complex than the retail art one. But it's much friendly to start with. You can get quicker wins. You can go yeah. and buy stock today and, and get it selling within a week. And you can start with a pretty small amount of money, a few hundred bucks probably. And a similar thing with online arbitrage. Robin was talking about when I interviewed her a while ago, and she's had a lot of experience coaching people in this area, which I haven't. So this is a little bit secondhand, but the people that do well in retail arbitrage are very action-oriented, don't like to plan too much maybe and want to get started. And if you have got that itch, then that's going to be a model that works better for you. Obviously, in COVID times, that's been very, very hard to do in practical terms. I guess we're coming up to a wind of opportunity, both in UK and America, maybe in mainland Europe, if you're listening from there. And maybe it's going to take a little bit longer because of the COVID situation, but it's bound to be opening back up. And I guess that we're going to have a lot of retailers that are really struggling and wanting to get offload stock. So I imagine there's going to be good buying opportunity quite soon in that way. 
So that's retail R, but I don't have a lot of experience. But what I can say is that you end up with a lot of complexity quite quickly because you'll yeah. end up with quite a lot of different product lines just yeah. to make enough revenue to live off or, or to begin to build a business. Yeah. Well, I have one story for retail arbitrage and I just tell it over and over. So I don't have a lot of experience either. But my one story is I walked into Office Depot one time and saw a bunch of items in a shopping cart at the front that said, Mark, you know, Mark for clearance. And they were the scratch on labels, like the, of names and words and numbers for like putting on glass. And uh, they were supposed to be, I think, 50 cents a piece. And then when the lady rang up, they were a penny a piece. So I bought the entire shopping cart worth. I think it was 280 packages because I had looked on my phone and they were selling for $10 each on Amazon. Wow. So I spent $2.80 on the product and I walked I went home, sent them into Amazon, and we sold those for several years. And that's my retail arbitrage story. I will say that retail arbitrage is, I think, obviously an opportunity for people who live in a metropolitan area that have access to stores or can drive to cities. It's always it's obviously because, it, the as it says, retail arbitrage, it's intended for you to find stores to walk into. The other deviation of this model that my buddy has implemented with uh, perfection is garage sailing, which is a form of retail arbitrage and box items that are spectacular in terms of the return on investment you know, items for a dollar at a garage sale and sell them for, you know, huge profit on Amazon. So that's another angle on retail arbitrage, I would say is garage sailing. Yeah. Yeah, good point. And I guess that in the end, retail arbitrage implies that you buy it from retail stores, but I mean, it's really wherever you can buy it at a cheaper price. So yeah, listen, this can go very big. One thing I would say to your point of if you're living in a metropolitan area, you can then service the big rural areas in America that are devoid of shops. And, and because of the geography, because you've got a huge continent with only 330 million or 331 million people there, it's really different to the UK because... The geography of the UK is much more condensed in terms of the population. We've got 66 million people, so about a fifth of the people and about, whatever, a 20th of the land. It's really crowded. So the opportunity to arbitrage a difference between being able to source something cool in, an, in a, a metropolitan area and not then being able to source it online for hundreds of miles away is less in the UK. So although sure. RA is an opportunity here, it's not the same as it is in the States. So I would say it's an opportunity I'd take more seriously if I were in the States than I would in, in the UK for that reason. Sure. Totally right. Okay. So that's retail arbitrage. Most people are familiar with that. Although I, I will say this just as a tease, we're going to go deeper into retail arbitrage this summer and actually have, I think what we're going to do is a big challenge and it'll be tied to the software that, you know, we have legendary software tools. We're relaunching those and rebranding. And I think we're going to do a fun retail arbitrage challenge and really go into great detail with true experts. And I think that'll be really fun because I, I do think there's huge opportunity there. I say that there's opportunity there because my story, personal story is I wanted to sell online for 10 years and I just didn't know what to sell. I didn't know how to do it. And this is from 1998 to 2007, 2008. And so to me, retail arbitrage serves as a fantastic gateway drug to broader opportunities. And I, I think that the framing of this is important, Michael. Maybe you can speak into this before we talk about online arbitrage for a moment. But these things tend to naturally lead. It's kind of like there's a path you can go on where you start with retail arbitrage. And then you the next thing you learn is this next one, which is online arbitrage. And then it seems like that is a natural progression to private label or wholesale selling. And then to customize products that you, you know, in a brand 
that you build for yourself. I don't know, just if you want to speak to the nature of that progression, if, is that what you see happen frequently? It seems like it's just a, it's inherent in the system of Amazon selling that people tend to do that. Well, interesting. I guess there's the internal and external dynamics. Let's talk about that. So the internal dynamic of the business, i.e. the business owner and their capital, as mm -hmm. you accumulate more capital, assuming that you're successful in selling in the, the say, use books, retail arbitrage, online arbitrage, you then have the capital to address things like wholesale or private label, where yeah. you can 10x the amount of capital needed or 5x. So wholesale, you're going to need, you know, 500 to 1,000 to more like $2,000 really to do a serious job on it. With private labeling, these days, honestly, I wouldn't advise people to go in with less than $10,000 because the market's mm -hmm. getting bigger, which means there's more money to be made, but there's uh, more competition. So you have to fight harder to enter it. But to come back to your question then, so that's one thing. The other one is as you grow in confidence, you can take bigger risks and add more skill sets. Now, mm -hmm. whilst redirecting, retail arbitrage can demand a huge amount of stock and cash management skill if you scale that up yeah. what you don't have to and that is not a small business i mean that is not a small ask I, a friend of mine is literally a rocket scientist he was a, a business partner of mine for a while in a private label mm -hmm. business that we ran uh, did a lot of retail arbitrage and he was very meticulous in his uh, measurement but you really have to be on top of it so don't get me wrong i'm not saying it's simple but the number of skill sets needed is smaller meaning that you have to be on top of stock management you have to be on top of your cash flow management and you have to be able to read the the runes if you like in the, the amazon marketplace yeah. but what you don't have to do is do keyword based research it's product based mm -hmm. you don't have to develop products you don't have to source them you don't have to do all mm -hmm. the branding work so for that reason yeah. mm -hmm. that's another reason for progression in the sense that you're adding new skill sets so by the time gotcha. you're doing a private label business you are adding a bunch of other skill sets that you didn't need at the reselling level if that makes sense yeah totally so, agree by the way that's just the internal dynamic the external dynamic though is even more important which is gradually speaking just trying to resell other people's products is getting harder and harder and less and less attractive as Amazon does that more and more efficiently. So then you get to pure private labeling and that was more attractive in 2013-14 when I started. That was that was the kind of apogee, uh, the, the high point of private label. But nowadays it, that's getting more and more competitive because Amazon's got very good relationships with the Chinese sellers. So now we need to be more customized. Yeah. So there's that external dynamic good forcing point. us down the lines of complexity, yeah. if you will. Okay. All right. So with that said, let's go to our <laughs> next topic, which is online arbitrage. So online, online arbitrage, arbitrage is obviously yeah. the deviation to source, not in retail stores or at garage sales, but to source from other websites. So you source yeah. online, you sell online. Power of that model, thoughts on online arbitrage from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, the power is you don't have to leave the house. So, I mean, that's in, yeah. in times of COVID, extremely important. I mean, really, and not just in times of COVID, what does that even mean? I mean, people talk about as if there's sunlit uplands, the other side of mass vaccination. My understanding, and I'm not an epidemiologist, but we need to kind of take account of it because it's so significant to economics and this sourcing model question. My understanding is mass vaccination isn't actually what's wiped out things like smallpox in the past. So I'm not actually convinced there's going to be as sunlit as people say. I hope as a human being that it is, but I would say as a business, owner i would rather have a part of my business at least that is not vulnerable to can i physically go to the shops or not so that's why i think online arbitrage has a particular importance in 2021 and beyond possibly so in terms yeah. of the sort of person it is i think it's a different personality to some degree because it's going to be very online it's going to be more of an analytical type personality mm -hmm. and as, as one of the things as we go through from retail arb through online arb and, and wholesale i think it requires more um, happiness with spreadsheets and analysis and using tools um, because yeah. you're not literally just standing there chatting to the chap who, who runs the local supermarket or whatever it is you're sourcing from or warehouse 
and having conversations person to person. So I do know one of the people that I saw doing quite a good transition into this from as an early stage, I was actually working with him in a private label group for new newcomers to the business. He did really well. It's not only German who tend to be a more analytical, but was actually a computer programmer. And he did, he did a very nice job of setting up his online arbitrage business with very well thought out tools that kind of in a systematic way. So there is actually quite a lot of analytical thought that goes into being an online arbitrage. I think perhaps more than people acknowledge up front. And you do need to be quite meticulous and happy with analyzing data. For some people, that's just not their bag. For others, it really works for them. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, 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 to- I totally have seen that play out over the years where people I, I know, my kids included and others, have gotten into the system of learning how to do retail arbitrage or online arbitrage. And then ultimately, the decision to go forward is really about their personality and their interest in it, not so much the actual functioning of the business model. And I think that's obviously just is super important to think through is it's not just whether it works, it's whether it works for me, which is what you said at the beginning of this podcast. So I totally agree. Exactly right. You find yourself getting miserable and overwhelmed. Sooner or later, that's yeah. going to show up in the numbers anyway. So that's the point where you yeah. either need to scale it up and get scale yourself out of the day-to-day operations, or if there isn't yeah. enough money to scale yourself out of the operations and you hate it, then what you've done if you stick with it is created a job that you hate for yourself which is yeah. really bad yeah. and wise and it's surprisingly easy to yeah. do that because amazon is to to quote the uh, name of one of the courses out there an amazing selling machine it is incredible at what mm-hmm. it does but it doesn't mm-hmm. it's not a happiness machine nobody guaranteed that you'd enjoy the process so it's really important <laughs> this is why the business model thinking that we're talking about this is when yeah. it becomes critical to know that you're thinking yeah. You've either you're putting an artificial dichotomy. You know, you're either going to go a give up on what I'm doing, even though it's kind of working, or b keep going and be miserable. Well, that's a hell of a yeah. con- that's that's Hobson's choice, right? There is an option C, yeah. which is keep working on Amazon, learn, you know, redeploy a lot of the skills you've learned and the environment yeah. you've learned, but do a business model which suits your personality more. And that's yeah. why I think this this kind of thinking is so important. Well, obviously, the next business model is replans, which is basically a strategy of product sourcing that could be tied to retail arbitrage or online arbitrage. But the focus or phrasing of replans is that you're you're emphasizing products that are replenishable items, meaning that the customer is buying buying them frequently over and over again, and that you can, in essence, source profitably. And so, the replans model is we're broadcasting live into the 30-day replans challenge. It's being taught by and really pioneered by Danny Stock and then other people who have learned from him and scaled to six really successful heights. Kate Chaddock, of course, is in the group, seven-figure replin seller. Jimmy Smith did training for us. And so this model of replins, I think, is really powerful. Not in the replins challenge group, then look for that content in the future from us. And I think technically you could still hit uh, replenschallenge.com and sign up, but we're, we're going to be closing it real soon. By the time you listen to this podcast, it'll probably be closed. But it is a model that's very interesting because it gives a predictability to the items that you're focused on. You know, it's retail arbitrage and online arbitrage can be horribly random and unpredictable in terms of what you're finding and selling. And replans is really a strategy that narrows that down so that you've got a set of ASINs that you focus on that you know are, in essence, proven winners that you can go back to over and over and over again. So it's kind of a sifting and sorting process to find those types of ASINs to, uh, to sell. 
that makes a lot of sense to me. And by the way, that kind of response to that, the main reason I've never bothered to learn uh, retail arbitrage or take it more seriously is not because people don't make millions doing it. But I just find the idea of going back to somebody where you've made a ton of money with a product and then you go back to the source and they go, oh, no, we haven't got any more of that. Uh, just the soul destroying idea <laughs> because it's not always easy to find yeah. products that sell profitably and therefore i think the replens thing is it answers that question and i for me personally if i were going to start this out apart from playing with the used books which i've done a bit in retail art which i've done tiny bits really amateurishly just to kind of get the experience I, I wouldn't be in any way interested in doing those at any scale because of what you just said the randomness it sounds horrendous you can't build a business very well on randomness you can manage randomness but that's a massive challenge so i would i would definitely see replens as my sort of starting point if i was starting again and i wanted to just keep it relatively affordable and simple but on the other hand scalable replens to me answers a lot of those problems so i think it's a super smart model to consider for sure sure so what's our next one well, the next one is is still a reselling model. So there are two others which are very linked, which is also about reselling. One of them is a kind of halfway house into kind of developing products, and that is wholesale sourcing. So I guess eventually, uh, and this is again where I would probably get impatient with the randomness and unpredictability and just want a scalable system because I just don't want to be you know, going around those circles too many times, is uh, you just develop relationships with uh, people who are brand owners, theoretically manufacturers. If they're in the mm -hmm. United States, the UK, mm -hmm. they're probably not manufacturing. They're probably importing mostly from China, maybe other places. And uh, you, the art there is to be able to, so the upside is massive, which is predictability. And if you've got products already selling under a brand, which is successful on Amazon, then yeah. you have kind of guaranteed the demand side, which is huge compared to private yeah. labeling, which we'll talk about in a minute. The downside is obviously got to persuade people to work with you. And if you have no track record, that's harder. And if you don't have a track record and you haven't got the right personality, you're going to hate this because it's not like retail art where you can go out today and by Friday be selling stuff and get the cash in your pocket on Monday or two, two weeks later. But the cash will show up in your Amazon account straight away and two weeks later you get it into your bank account. It's yeah. going to take time to approach a lot of people. There's going to be a lot of rejection. So I would say that the fundamental skill set here is business to business sales that is added on top of the other skills there obviously if you're going to scale a retail art business you'll get to know store owners and stuff as well but this is intrinsic to the business model but if you can do that if you can contact a lot of people at scale manage that process mm -hmm. and then persuade some people through persuasion conversations aka sales yeah. then this can really work for you and for what it's worth i'm strongly considering starting a, a wholesale wing to my um, amazon operations because for that reason i'm not a product development guy uh, whereas i'm comfortable with business to business sales mm -hmm. so if that's you that could work for you mm -hmm. if you love products and hate conversations it definitely won't work for you yeah yeah i i think this interesting model is very interesting so i'll speak into it a little bit because we do have some coaching clients that are very very successful uh, seven figure wholesale sellers and i'll just speak a bit about the model i think you you express something that's interesting which is the first question is who are you comfortable having conversations with? If you're comfortable having a conversation with the clerk at a local store when you're buying items to you know, do retail arbitrage, that's one level of comfort. If you're comfortable talking to the company at a corporate level where you can ask to be a, you know, a, a seller and set up a wholesale selling account with them, that's a different level of comfort conversation. And, but if you're comfortable in that space, then the opportunities are out there. The other piece that's really fascinating to me here, and I think everyone who's in the Replens Challenge and who's listening to this, as soon as you set up a wholesale business, it gives you the opportunity 
to create a brand. Because what you can do is go deep into a sub niche on Amazon. So you can create a brand that's a beauty brand or a fashion brand or a outdoor, you know, garden tools brand or, you know, whatever it is, you, you take sub niche strategy and you can create a brand that then allows you to sell offline as well. You can have a Shopify site. And I, I know this because we have clients that I personally work with that are seven figure sellers that do exactly this. So this isn't a hypothetical. I mean, I could, I could name the names and tell you exact details, but I obviously can't do that. But, but what they've done is they've taken wholesale opportunities from the companies and then created a niche brand that is the overarching store brand. It's like naming a store. It's like creating a store. And then the items they put in their store are all just the, the, you know, the wholesale products that they've sourced. And so that line of thinking takes you in a completely new direction that can lead you off Amazon. And so that's yeah. really powerful. Now, the only, the only downside to the wholesale model, in my view, is two things. One is you're not going to get Looney Tunes return on investment at the product level. You'll get Keystone pricing, which is they'll sell it to you for $10, knowing that you can probably sell it for $20. And they might even have minimum advertised pricing requiring that you sell it at $20. And so that's the margin framework that you play in, in terms of the unit costs. And that's just a more lean, more kind of efficient model to have to run. And so hopefully that makes sense. Michael, jump in here, but there's also some questions in the group, I think as well. Yeah, great. Well, let's maybe deal with the the questions a a bit later, but if they're simple ones, we can nail them. Let's, let me summarize with my thoughts. Predictability, scalability. You can create a brand, as you said, absolutely correct. I've got two clients that are doing that one, particularly on a quite a big scale. They have their own direct to consumer site, whether it's on Shopify or some other Mm -hmm. thing, that's about 10% of their sales. The downside though is, is kind of the same thing. I mean, first of all, for those starting out, you need much more capital. I mean, say much more. It's the one or two thousand dollars to really start i mean that, that won't give you scaling power but it's a lot less than private label or custom products it's a longer time to get started compared to ra as we said but really speaking if you're looking at the bigger picture two things first of all, the margins as you said are a lot lower and the second thing is you can create a brand that's a kind of reselling brand and then your your primary skill set is brand curation not creation so in other words yeah. you have taste in who, whose stuff to resell the yeah. downside as i'm experiencing recently with some clients of mine that are, are looking at selling the business is it's really hard to resell to sell a reselling business and that's when Mm -hmm. that's normally when the clients are starting to work with me because they really want to create their own private label side of things yeah so there are some some downsides for the more ambitious people as well yeah okay let me answer the question real quick kimberly asked what's the difference between wholesale and replens is it the case that or almost all wholesale is considered replens but replens are not wholesale. So I think it's a great question. And I'll just say it this way. The concept of replens is phrasing that really comes out of the idea of retail arbitrage or online arbitrage. And it's about sourcing specific types of items under that model. So it's sort of a sub system within retail or online arbitrage. And you're right, wholesale items, obviously any item that's bought frequently would be would fall into the phrasing of replenishable and so wholesale items ideally will be ones that are in demand meaning they will sell over and over and over again that you have an opportunity to sell that is either not a lot of other sellers are in the space doing the same thing or you've got an exclusive maybe there's a distributor or manufacturer or something like that that you actually can meet 
and I, I, we have clients in this situation as well. They've met manufacturers and the manufacturers have said, we hate Amazon. Amazon's a big giant mess. We don't know how to sort it out. We've got people on there selling you know, different prices. We aren't, we don't even know who they are. And it's an opportunity for you to step in and say, well, you could have maybe your exclusive Amazon distributor and I'll clean up all that craziness. We'll sort out any drama, get those other sellers wound down over time. And then I'll be your exclusive yeah. Amazon seller and I'll do it right. And you'll know what's happening and yeah. thumbs up all the way around win, win. And those really are huge opportunities for yeah. people who know how to sell on Amazon to approach manufacturers or big distributors and say, let me be your Amazon sales channel manager in effect for a percentage or, you know, flat fee plus percentage or whatever huge opportunity which is a different model again slightly but yeah you're right i mean in terms of the cash flow if it's your own cash at stake or versus somebody else's that massively changes the scalability even though Mm -hmm. the skill set is very similar so you're right these all shade into each other what i would say at that point even if you're just starting out and just want to quote buy stuff from people you would have thought oh i'm just buying stuff from you therefore it won't be a problem to get a deal that's not the case as you just pointed out amazon could be a mess for a lot of brands and that a lot of them aren't keen to have yet another amazon seller so what i would say is that implies to the point you said about the progression through these skill sets if you've done some ra and oa and you've really got to understand amazon and you can point to that experience and some successes then you have a very different conversation with a brand owner for the wholesale mm-hmm. sourcing model. Yeah. Um, so you're absolutely right. And yes, the aim would often be to be the exclusive reseller, but you're going to have to develop that relationship over time and build trust, I guess. So The other way you do that, of course, is you create a brand and you have a website and even ideally a retail store or physical store, even if it's a, you know, in a, in an antique mall, you have one booth that, you know, it's booth number 42 is you, but it's a business address and you can be a retailer. Many, many distributors or, or, you know, product manufacturers will be much more comfortable talking to you. If you're a local retailer that also sells online versus a Amazon seller, who wants to sell on Amazon. Those are very different things in the mind of the manufacturer. And so, you know, that's one different angle to take. It is. By the way, there's one little nuance to this, which I haven't personally done or or come across before, but there's a um, very, very good Amazon seller, Jason Boyce, who he and his brother sold on Amazon for, I think, 17 years, many of which were eight-figure years. Uh, He's now exclusively uh, running his agency, which is a huge job anyway, called Avenue 7 Media. Super guy. Had him on the podcast a while ago, and we're in conversations about, you know, collaborating on various things as well. So he talked about the fact that, as we discussed, and to your point of how do these business models flow into each other and and if you might need to change them the external dynamic that pushed him to move from retail arbitrage i.e reselling stuff to wholesale arrangements pushed him into this next thing which is that amazon would see that jason and his brothers were reselling successfully on a particular product lines from a particular manufacturer or brand owner and amazon would go direct to the brand owner and say we're going to kick you off amazon unless you sell direct to us which is grim but real and the way that jason and his brothers got around that was to to create to to have the manufacturer make exclusive products for them only that they would then be the only sellers of not only would did they become the only sellers of but they started off as the only sellers of them so they were kind of using their their brand owners as effectively kind of private labelers so this is a sort of unusual halfway house Hey there, folks. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of The E-Commerce Leader. So today, obviously, kind of in my comfort zone and the whole Amazon FBA business model thing is, I think, still within the zone of The E-Commerce Leader because it's a big 
picture view if you like and we try and avoid just tactical stuff that's going to go out of date here and um, hopefully we've done that so i think the business model thing as we discussed at the beginning is so important if you are about to start on it so that you understand the nature of the beast and or if you've got to the point where you feel you need to pivot because either internal reasons like your own capital you know ability to capitalize a business i.e put more money in more cash have maybe grown maybe that means you can explore business models that were off the table for you so often used books retail arbitrage arbitrage online arbitrage will be the only options for some people because of their finances but later on they may be able to explore wholesale sourcing replan sits in the middle in a quite interesting way and obviously jason can talk to that and the specialist guests he had he's had on his replans challenge have been talking about that but the the main thing is this that you need a match between the business business model where you're starting from, your your experience and your financial resources and where you're trying to get to. If you want to create a business that is sellable, you're probably going to find a reselling business is difficult. Not impossible to resell a sell a resell business. In other words, a business where your primary assets are relationships with wholesale sources. It's not impossible, but it's much harder than it is to sell a more unique product business so we today really focused on the reselling types of business models a quick recap used books upsides really pretty cheap and easy to start downsides obviously they can get pretty physically heavy and take a lot of space and they have the same uh, downsides of any reselling which is to say that you have sourcing issues if you can find one good source you need to be able to go back and and uh, have something you can replenish and that could be a problem with books like anything else retail arbitrage online arbitrage RA is cheap to start. Uh, if you're in a metropolitan area in the US, as Jason's pointed out, that's particularly good. It's more people-oriented. It's more physically labor-oriented and obviously vulnerable to COVID. But a lot of upsides, a lot of people have made um, not only a start with Amazon selling with RA, but they've made um, good money. And actually, some people scale up very big businesses. And like any other business scaling, just because it's simple to start doesn't mean it's uh, not going to be demanding to grow. But the skill set is more limited than somebody who's going to be creating their own products as well. When I say limited, I don't mean not a high level of skill, but you've got to be able to deal with stock management, sourcing and financial management, but you don't have to develop products. The same is true for OA, replens and wholesale, which are the other main business models at least you can focus on sourcing replens is an interesting one that sits between oa and and sort of and and ra and wholesale oa by the way i should just mention that it comes down to personality like ra there's sort of randomness of sourcing can get a bit distressing but unlike ra obviously you're 100 online so it can be more analytical it could suit an analytical systems focused kind of person more perhaps Replens is interesting so that you're you're really emphasizing replenishable items, things that the customer buys again and again. And Danny Stock and other people like Kate Shaddock and, and Jimmy Smith are really good for that. Wholesale, the upside really is, is the predictability and the scalability. And the downside is, I guess, and the more capital required and it takes a lot longer when you're starting from scratch. So there is a natural progression potentially from one to the other. That doesn't mean that you can't build a serious business with any serious business model. And as Jason said, once you find something that's working, I would double down on it. And the other little nuance I would say is don't abandon a business model just because one product line or one particular sourcing source hasn't worked out for you. I don't think you can say you've tested retail arbitrage when you tried to sell one or two products. If you tried 10, 20 product lines and it's not working for you, maybe that's a reason to move. So 
there's some interesting stuff out there and there's a ton of training obviously like anything else it's not normally as quick and easy as people make out you've got to have a degree of determination but if you are determined and you get good training then these are certainly very viable business models for you so hopefully that's been an interesting overview and you got some good takeaways from that if you found today interesting two things number one is to get yourself automatically into your sort of podcast inbox as it were don't forget to subscribe to the show on any podcast player of your choice and if you are on apple podcasts we'd love it if you could give us a rating just one two three or four five stars don't even need to write a review but we would love it if you can take the time to write a review that would be wonderful reward for the work that it takes to create and publish this stuff so thanks in advance for your help with that and do keep listening to the e-commerce leader that was the e-commerce leader podcast with michael Vizi in london england and Jason Miles in Seattle, Washington. If you liked this content, don't forget to subscribe to the show on your podcast app. For free resources, including PDFs and videos on topics like traffic, products, and sales channels, just go to www.theecommerceleader.com. No hyphens, just as it sounds. Thanks so much for listening. Listening.